Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lewis was a springly youth and given to affairs of love. And it chanced one day that in sport he chased a certain damsel, the daughter of Germond. She fled in at her father's gate, and the king followed her, laughing. But he forgot to stoop sufficiently at the portal, and was crushed between the roof and the high pommel of his saddle, so that he died within a few days. The Dark Ages, 476, 918 by Charles Oman. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hello and well... Wait. Actually, you know, everyone says hello and welcome. And then the episode name. Why did they do that? Hello, and welcome to the history of Rome. Oh. Hmm. Let's start over. Greetings. You're traveling from Wittenberg to Westphalia. I'm your host, Benjamin Jacobs. This is episode 18, Death and Collapses. I'd like to begin today by thanking everyone for all the positive feedback on the last few episodes. I worried about doing this little series, as it is yet another tangent away from our march towards the early modern era, but the Gadeshi are just a lot of fun, and involved in a lot of key moments in the early Middle Ages, and it seems people are enjoying hearing about them as much as I have been enjoying talking about them, and so we continue. So when we left our heroes, Lambert I of Splinto was in exile in the Lombard city-state of Benevento, and Splinto was being ruled by one Supo III. This state of affairs had come about as a result of the gradually deteriorating relationship between Lambert and Louis II, King of Italy and Emperor of the Romans. Though never exactly best buds, the relationship had reached a point of no return in 871, when Lambert had rebelled against Louis just as Louis was preparing to consolidate his hold on southern Italy. This rebellion, undertaken with several Lombard co-conspirators, effectively destroyed Louis's newfound control over southern Italy, a control he had worked his entire reign to build. While the other co-conspirators were ensconced in the southern Apennines, the Gadeshi were in the Mark, which was wide open to attack. Once Louis escaped the south, Lambert was left facing the wrath of the emperor by himself, and so he fled. Lambert's flight was very nearly the end of this story. It wasn't just Lambert that fled, it was his whole family, notably his son and brother, who were helpfully both named Guy. And the whole clan was subsequently besieged in Benevento. 
and if that city had fallen, then that would have probably been that. From Louis's mood, it's unlikely that the famous Carolingian clemency would have been extended to the Gedeshi at this time. But then, Louis started to feel poorly. We're told very little of Louis's death, other than that he decided he wasn't making much headway in Benevento, headed north, and died. Now, it's hardly unheard of in our story for Franks to die suddenly in Italy. But if you will all forgive a short digression, I have really, really gotten suspicious of these deaths. Not Franks dying in Italy, malaria and all that. Let me put it this way. In between the death of Louis the Pious and Charles the Fat, there were roughly 23 Carolingians directly related to the line of Louis the Pious via the male line. So this is his son, their sons, and their sons' sons. Of these, roughly 12 died in accidents, in prison, or in circumstances that are not explained at all, usually leaving no heirs, except that in all these cases we're told they died of natural causes. Now, to be fair, that's... let me do the math here... That's roughly 52%, which is worse than 50-50. Now, it's well known that the life expectancy in the Middle Ages was pretty bad. But let me put on my demographer hat for a little bit and teach you all a little bit about statistics like life expectancy. That number is an average, based on everyone born and everyone who died. Let's leave aside for a moment methodological issues with how you get reliable data from the Dark Ages, but... In most cases where there is a low life expectancy, it's not because everyone is popping off at 30 like in Logan's run. Usually what's going on is that childbirth is getting them. When you think about it, childbirth is pretty physically horrific for everyone involved, pretty much caused by our species' super special need to have intelligent babies with gigantic heads. If something goes wrong, it's pretty easy for the baby to die in the process. And if the baby dies, there's a strong chance that the mother will die too, and sometimes one or both of them will die shortly afterwards regardless. Being involved in childbirth, whether you are the baby or the mother, is a very high-risk activity. And as everyone doesn't really have much of a choice as to whether they are born, and as women were often not given too much of a choice as to whether they got pregnant at this time, this is a behavior whose risk is pretty evenly spread around among the population. Obviously, women are more at risk than men. Once you are born, babies and children have a really high susceptibility to accidents and illness and famine in pre-modern societies, leading to even more deaths. But once you hit age 10, things kind of change. And 10 is a rough number. Your risks drop off pretty sharply, and you're very likely to make it to a reasonable old age. Or at least middle age. Certainly illnesses had a greater impact before the advent of germ theory in public health, and if you got sick, they had a higher mortality rate. But then, illness was also less common for people living in agrarian settings. Starvation was a real problem for the lower classes, but then the human body is actually pretty well designed to deal with starvation once you leave childhood. For the nobility, even these risks were pretty limited. Nobles were expected to be warriors and participate in dangerous training activities, sure, but even still, this was not such a huge danger for most. Look, we've been talking about the Gadeshi for the last few episodes, and despite being a pretty bellicose lot, most of them have survived pretty comfortably into old age, or at least a very late middle age by modern standards. So what was up with the Carolingians? Simon MacLean, in his excellent Kingship and Politics of the Early Middle Ages, describes it as a bewildering succession of accidents and misadventures. That is the only case that can be made directly from the reports of the chroniclers, but at the risk of kind of going outside the written material here, 
I'm crying foul. I find it impossible that over 50% of the Carolingians just happened to die, usually in the prime of life, but before they had an heir. Beyond the demographics, my evidence here is a little flimsy. Our only sources are the chronicles produced by the churchmen of the time, a group recognized to be operating as the propaganda arm of the empire. Even when they didn't like an individual or an action, they were all more or less committed to the Carolingians as a whole. It may have been just too horrible to suggest such a widespread outbreak of teenage assassination. But more importantly, most of the writers were not directly present for the events described, and given the way news traveled in the Middle Ages, uh, if the family was able to suppress discussion of assassination at the source, no one would know. With information so limited and power so concentrated, there would be no way for even rumors to get to the ears of middle-ranking or even upper-ranking church figures, and if it did, they just might not want to write it down. That said, this is all speculation based on a lack of evidence beyond the demographics, and as far as anyone at the time beyond the Frankish inner circles knew, these were natural deaths. That, too, is an important part of the story. It's one of the maddening and exhilarating things about studying the early Middle Ages that mysteries like this develop. I personally think that the standard narrative is a bit too credulous of all these supposedly natural deaths, but given the lack of evidence, it would also be improper of me to assert that a given death was definitely assassination. So, keep that in mind as we go forward. Hopefully that was all interesting. To get back to the main point, in 876, Louis II, a young man who had made a whole lot of enemies and was engaged in the campaign of revenge to consolidate centralized power in Italy, died unexpectedly of natural causes, leaving only an unmarried daughter. Supposedly, he indicated that his cousin Carloman should inherit the kingdom, and actually, between us, that might not have been a bad choice. Carloman was the eldest son of Louis the German, eldest surviving son of Louis the Pious, and a popular and powerful duke in his own right. Moreover, Carloman's base of power, Bavaria, was just right over the Alps, and was inland, which at this point meant that it was more or less isolated from raiding, at least raiding by the Saracens and Vikings, and they were the big threats at this point. Given that Louis spent his reign trying to consolidate and properly govern Italy, in order to use it as a way to reunify Christendom, Carloman may have seemed like a guy who had the means and ability to assume power, along with a relative lack of northern distractions which would allow him to rule Italy properly. I haven't found any sources that went into Louis's mental processes, but if I were him, Carloman would seem like a good choice to me. But, of course, such deathbed wills were pretty useless when Charles the Bald lives next door. Remember Charles? Charles was the one whose huge realm was under a state of near-constant harassment by major Viking raids. Raids that were often aided by disloyal nobles, who all apparently despised Charles. For example, Lambert II of Nantes, who we discussed two episodes back. These rebellions were also aided by fairly regular incursions from Eastern Francia, as the Western and Eastern Francs had been squabbling over the ownership of Louis II's dead brother's territories since before the two boys had died totally natural deaths. So Charles was far away from Italy, weak, distracted, and unpopular. Charles was also the one who developed the cavalry arm of the Frankish military, apparently for the sole purpose of rushing in when his relatives conveniently died and taking over their territory. That last part isn't in the sources, that's my theory. Putting that out there. So yeah, despite being probably the worst person for the job, it was Charles that got the cup. Podcast footnote. I want to take a moment to draw attention to the absolute statement I just made. 
Of course, Charles wasn't the worst person for the job, just the worst of the candidates with the pull to make a reasonable case. This is actually an important point, because I never said that Louis had no children, just that he had no male heir. He had an adult daughter, who was apparently popular, intelligent, and had exercised some governmental authority already. This daughter, Ermengarde, which is a name I find rather amusing, was not married, and thus really had no way to push her claim because the Middle Ages were sexist and bad. It would make an interesting alternative history to think about what would happen if things had been just a little bit different, and Ermengarde had been able to make a go of it. On the other hand, as a woman, she was not subject to the uh, accident-prone nature of her male relatives, and so maybe there was a nice silver lining here. Not to defend sexism, but, uh, yeah. As it was, she married one Basso of Provence, who will end up being fairly important in our story. The two had many children, which we can optimistically use as evidence that they were at least somewhat fond of one another. And one of their sons, Louis the Blind, will actually be re-entering our story, possibly next episode. As far as Ermengarde goes, she seems to have had a nice enough life with an important noble, which is, all in all, way better than having an unfortunate sword-related accident on a hunting trip. End podcast footnote. Where were we? Oh yeah. Charles the Bald, the heavily disliked youngest son of Louis the Pious, was the one that ended up taking Italy, mostly because he showed up really quickly and just spoke with a whole lot of confidence. This was subsequently regarded as a move of questionable legitimacy by many, and was certainly viewed with extensive hostility by the Eastern Franks. But from the perspective of the local power brokers, Charles may not have seemed that bad. He was a distant king, so he couldn't interfere too much, but he had a big realm, so he would have had resources that maybe he could use to finish driving off the Saracens. This at least seems to have been the view of the Pope, John VIII, who actively supported Charles. This gave Charles the legal and propaganda cover he needed for his coup, but he was not about to leave it at that. He installed a representative on the ground, incidentally a certain Basso of Provence, who met a nice lady while he was there, and replaced some of the more ardently pro-Louis nobles with friendlier faces, before he received word that a massively put-out Carloman had invaded western Francia. Charles gathered his cavalry back up and headed north to deal with the new threat. So what does this have to do with the Gideshi, you might ask? Well, we left Lambert down in Benevento, landless and pretty much persona non grata as far as the Franks were concerned. Suddenly, the guy who was the reason for Lambert's exile, Louis II, was dead and Charles was looking for ways to cement his rule. Incidentally, Supo III, who Louis had just put in charge of Spolento, was a really big fan of Louis's, the kind of guy that maybe Charles shouldn't leave in charge of one of the three biggest duchies in Italy, the other two being Tuscany and Friuli, if you're keeping track. And then there's the Gadeshi, down there in Benevento, landless, really in need of a friend. You see where this is going. So it was that within two years of betraying his sovereign to a probable death, Lambert was back in Spolento, no harm, no foul. In fact, Lambert and his brother were given an important job, to work with the Pope in expelling yet another Saracen raid. Apparently that whole looting Rome thing was also swept under the rug. I mean, that was a few popes back at this point. Water and bridges. Podcast footnote. They go through popes pretty quick too at this point in history, but I'm a bit more willing to be credulous about papal deaths. Most of them were old men when they got appointed, and the church chronicles are generally pretty open about when the popes got assassinated, which was more common than one might hope, but it was hardly in the 50-50 range. End podcast footnote. Everyone was so happy that no one seems to have gotten overly bent out of shape when the attempt to expel the Saracens failed due to an intervention by Capua, 
and the Saracens settled into a fortified camp between Capua and Rome. Pope wasn't happy, but everyone else seemed okay. Charles made two other changes at this point with lasting consequences. First, he split off a chunk of Spolento up in Umbria and gave it to the Pope. This would eventually be the core of the region we now call Spolento in Italy, for those of you who are up with modern Italian geography. But uh, anyway, he also split off another huge chunk of Spolento and gave it to Lambert's younger brother, Guy, with instructions that Guy work closely with the Pope on defense issues. This all seems to have happened with the happy ascent of the Gadeshi, which might seem odd since they just lost a bunch of land, but it got Lambert off the hook for coming to help the Pope every time someone thought there might be a Saracen under the couch or something, and the donation to the Papal States would, you know, be good for his soul and stuff, and also help the Papal States be more defensible territorially, which everyone seemed to think would be a good idea. Finally, though Lambert was theoretically subordinate to both Charles and the Pope, this setup meant that in practice, Lambert never had to do any kind of military service unless he really wanted to. So everyone was happy with the arrangement. Charles was away in western Francia, dealing with rebellions and Vikings and not messing with anyone's personal businesses. The Pope had a Gadeshi to fight people, and Lambert got to reconsolidate his hold on Spolento and start expanding it again. Sometimes at the expense of the Pope, but what's some violent theft between friends? Eventually, the Pope kind of noticed some flaws with this arrangement. If Charles was in western Francia, not messing with anyone's personal businesses, he wasn't much help with that whole Saracen camp on the Pope's doorstep thing. To put the distances in perspective, these Saracens were about an hour drive from the center of Rome. Not that they had cars or modern roads, but that was kind of uncomfortably close. Lambert's brother Guy fought a few rather brilliant battles against them, but no one had the resources to rub out the camp. So the Pope started pestering Charles with letters, saying, Hey buddy, nice kingdom of Italy you got there. I seem to remember a guy with a big hat really pushing for you. That, that was me. You said you'd help me with this whole Saracen thing, but that's okay. I know you want to. I'll just sit here in Rome, weeping for the people of southern Italy, who are all going to hell because you're too busy hanging out with a bunch of hairy guys on rowboats to come help me. In 877, Charles was just wrapping up a failed attempt at seizing eastern Francia in the wake of the death of his brother, Louis the German. Not having succeeded, and not having anything else to do, Charles headed south to help the Pope. He apparently came with a pretty small force, expecting to lead regional forces in the effort. But those regional forces, including Basso of Provence, his local regent, were remarkably unenthusiastic. It may be that they only liked Charles when he was elsewhere, which seems to have been a pretty common feeling, really. They may also have had their fill of adventures in southern Italy under Louis, Maybe they felt Charles ought to have brought more northern resources to bear on this, though from my perspective, bringing any northern army into Italy was a pretty good way to get that northern army killed. Whatever their motives, Carloman, the son of Louis the German, who had just beaten off Charles' attempt to take over eastern Francia, and who Charles had cheated of rule in Italy many years before, took this opportunity to invade Italy. With a clear lack of local support and a fairly smug Carloman coming his way, Charles fled in terror, became ill during the Alpine crossing, and died at one of the Alpine monasteries, and was hastily buried by his retinue without much ceremony due to the smell. For the record, I'm pretty willing to accept this one at face value, as we are given at least a few details about Chuck getting sick and lingering, who was there, symptoms, smelly corpse, and the burial. 
Maybe I'm too much of a softy, but at least this is something more than in such and such a year Charles died, or in such and such a year Charles was out hunting and accidentally walked into a spear 15 times. Anyway, Charles had a good run and had a bunch of heirs, so I tend to think that anyone who wanted to off him would have done so years before. Man, this episode has a lot of digressions. That might be my thing. Anyway... Carloman had entered Italy, but surprise, surprise, his army all got illnesses and he had to retreat back to the north. This left everyone in Italy again scrambling to figure out the best way to deal with the situation. My sources are maddeningly thin on this period, and basically everything is insane. But here goes. Charles the Bald's son, Louis the Stammerer, was the legitimate heir of Charles the Bald's possessions. But Carloman was still considered Louis II's legitimate heir by a fair number of people, particularly given the unsettled state of primogeniture at this time. This situation put Lambert in an interesting position. Given his easy access to Rome and large, morally flexible army, Lambert had the chance to really be the kingmaker here. Someone who controlled Rome and Spolento could really shift the terms of the debate. It didn't hurt that Lambert's father-in-law was the Duke of Tuscany, one of the other three largest duchies in Italy. Over the years, people have read a lot of sneaky motives into this, but Lambert decided he supported Carloman. I'm unsure why this is seen as devious. Carloman was, as we've mentioned, a capable and powerful prince with a lot to bring to the table, while Louis the Stammerer apparently had all the downsides of Charles the Bald and possessed even less in the intellect department. It should be said that this view of Louis is heavily colored by what we hear of him, filtered through the prejudices of the time. It may be that Louis the Stammerer would have been an intelligent and successful man in a different time, one where speech impediments were curable, but as it was, he was described by friendly chroniclers as sweet and simple, and by hostile chroniclers as painfully inept. I'm a bit sympathetic to Louis, but that doesn't mean he would have done a bang-up job as the warrior king of the Franks, particularly since all sides agree that he was physically weak and chronically ill. Uh, more on Louis in a few minutes. So once he decided that he supported Carloman, Lambert put out feelers to see how the rest of Italy felt. His father-in-law, Adelbert of Tuscany, was on board. The Pope, however, was not. John VIII had been a big supporter of Charles the Bald. Louis the Stammerer was Charles' legitimate successor. But more than that, it became clear that Pope John blamed Carloman for Charles' death. Not necessarily in the assassination sense, but more in the moral culpability sense, as far as I can tell. But uh, anyway, John and Lambert exchanged increasingly acrimonious letters, and Lambert seems to have really lost his cool. He and Adelbert gathered their armies and moved into Rome under some pretext or another. Honestly, it does not seem to have been that hard. This was the second time that Lambert had taken the city after all. Once they were there, they committed the usual outrages and made it clear that the Romans were going to support Carloman, the legitimate candidate. Right? John did not stick around for this. He holed himself up in the Leonine City, the newly fortified area around St. Peter and St. Paul. After a month of being surrounded by morally flexible Gadeshi with anger management problems, the Romans swore fealty to Carloman, which satisfied the two dukes who thereupon left the city. The Pope excommunicated them on their way out, and then sent extremely angry letters all over Europe, informing various people of what had happened, and that he was going to take drastic actions to correct the situation. Noting that his job was to suffer for his flock, he informed everyone that he was going to leave Rome and go to France, no matter how horrible this was his lot in life. He convened a synod in northern France, at which he gathered all the candidates. On the way, he spent time in the territory of Basso, and wow! That Basso is such a nice guy, and such a pretty wife. 
It's a shame he can't be king. Anyway, John anointed Louis the Stammerer king, adopted Basso as his son, and headed home, job well done. Man, that Basso kid, so awesome. For his part, Louis the Stammerer proceeded to his palace, where he began handing out lands that already belonged to other people, in celebration of his new rule. His advisors managed to narrowly avoid a civil war. A year later, wouldn't you know it, that their chronic illness he had always had, that just caught up with him. No one saw it coming. Podcast footnote. At this conference, John told an odd tale about Lambert that historians to this day repeat. John said that Lambert's siege of the Leonine Palace was really all about getting himself, Lambert, crowned king. Given later actions by the Gadeshi, many historians repeat this story. I haven't seen anyone oppose it, really, so I don't know, maybe I'm missing something here? But I consider that kind of insane. Conditions were pretty different now versus later, spoiler alert. Lambert had a good thing going. He was as independent as he'd ever been. If he'd set himself up as king, even with the Pope's clearly compelled blessing, he would have made himself an enemy of Louis and Carloman both, scared the bejesus out of the Lombards, and given himself a ton of new responsibility with no guarantee that anyone other than Adelbert would fall in line. Not that Lambert would have said no to being king, but this just seems like a story the Pope made up to really reinforce the excommunication thing. End podcast footnote. So with Louis the Stammerer dead, the Pope who had just, I mean just, gotten back to Rome, convened a new council, this time in northern Italy. Now, Louis the Stammerer had two adult sons, and under Frankish law they were both eligible to rule. Unlike their father, these two seemed to have been fairly robust, but their handlers decided that the realm just could not risk war by leaving one of them out in the cold and giving everything to just one son. There is a strong suggestion that the councillors, who were all major landowners, had something to gain by the royal authority being split in this manner. But uh, at the council, Basso pleaded, pleaded for this not to be the decision. We have too many problems. Pick one or the other. Heck, pick Carloman, just not a joint kingship. That would guarantee civil war and split authority. But Basso lost out. Basso, the Pope's son, and son-in-law of Louis II, and owner of huge tracts of land, went back to Provence and thought about it a bit, and then declared himself king. No one outside of Provence really supported him, and his brother would actually attack him, but he did survive it, and his direct descendants would hold Provence as an independent entity until after the final breakup of the empire. I would like everyone to note that everything I've just said Everything since the death of Charles the Bald happened in the course of three years. But wait, there's more. When John got back to Rome, he put his feet up, wrote a few letters, did Pope stuff for a few months, and then was torn apart by an angry mob in the streets. Apparently, while he'd been playing grand politics, he'd run down the city treasury and had done a really terrible job of managing the patronage system that kept medieval cities functional. Given later events, it's not unlikely that the Gadeshi had also begun infiltrating the Roman nobility and may have had something to do with this. That same year, the elder of Louis the Stammerer's son had a terrible, tragic, unforeseeable accident, apparently while attempting to commit a rape. His brother died two years later of much less colorful natural causes. Now, I need to apologize if this episode has been a bit death-heavy. It is the early Middle Ages, and them's sort of the breaks but we have one more to attend to. In 880, with everything up north hitting the fan, Lambert had decided it was time to reclaim Capua. He besieged it for several months, 
and died at the siege. We don't know how old he was when he died, but he had ruled Spolento from 859 until 880, with a gap from 871 to 876. He may not have had his father's golden touch, but he had had quite the ride. Now that we're drawing close to the end of the episode, there's one last question that may be on your minds. Is there anyone in Europe at this point who is not dead? Well, Louis the Stammerer had a third son, who at this point was an infant and thus was not considered for succession. There was Carloman, but Carloman had been incapacitated by a stroke shortly after leaving Italy, something I couldn't find room for in the narrative. He abdicated in favor of his brother Louis, whose son Hugh was considered a very promising lad, but who would die shortly thereafter. No one was paying much attention to Charles the Fat at this time, the youngest brother. Down in Italy, there was a new pope, of course. Adelbert was alive and well in Tuscany, and a man named Berengar was ruling in Friuli. In Spolento, Lambert was survived by two guys. One was his son Guy, who was a strapping lad, probably in his early twenties. The other guy was Lambert's brother Guy, who ruled a small piece of Spolento along the border with the Papal States. These two guys will be the core of our story next time, and between the two of them they will lead the Gadeshi into taking on the entirety of Europe, and, for a time at least, winning. Be sure to check it out. Did you like the episode? Some of the thanks should go to Andrew, our editor, and to Kristaps, who did the intro, and to Nadasurf, who wrote our theme music, and who is currently on tour. If you like the show, stop by the website, the Facebook, email me, write an iTunes review, tell a friend, write it on a bathroom wall, or donate. But whatever you do, tune in next time for another exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.